Hi, this is Danielle from The Jealous Curator, and this is episode 145 of Art for Your Ear. This episode is brought to you by SachiArt.com, the world's largest curated online gallery offering original artwork and limited edition prints by independent artists from around the world. And throughout the fall, we're still keeping our eyes open for Saatchi's The Other Art Fair in a whole bunch of cities. So London is happening this weekend, followed by Los Angeles on October 25th through 28th, and finally, Brooklyn in early November. To find dates, locations, and more, pop over to theotherartfair.com. Okay, so I'm kind of pinching myself about today's guest. I have been a huge fan of France-based, British-born artist Annie Kevins for years. In fact, she happens to be the first artist in the first chapter of my new book, a big important art book, Now with Women. It was just released this past Tuesday, and I am beyond thrilled about all of it. Yep, Annie's work is absolutely beautiful with a fabulous backstory, so let's get to that story, shall we? She lives in the French countryside, and our connection was not perfect, So it's a bit echoey, but totally worth it. Ready? Calling Annie in France. Hi, Annie. Hi. I am so, so happy that we're actually finally talking in person. Yes, yes. (laughs) After after a lot of emails, and um, I am so, so, so happy that your story is in my book. Did you know that you're the first story of the whole book? No, I didn't. Yep, first, first one in chapter one. Oh, how exciting. Yeah, and it just looks so beautiful, all of your artwork, and your story is so good, and um, and so I really, really wanted to have you on the podcast so that um, I can find out even more stuff, and um, yeah, so first of all, where are you right now? Are you in France or England? I'm in France. Oh, okay. I'm in, I'm in, in the Dordogne. Oh, that sounds romantic. It's the southwest of France, um, east of Bordeaux. Oh. And uh, just north of Toulouse. Oh my gosh, that sounds dreamy. Yeah, it is. It's a ridiculously beautiful part of France. <laughs> and so, do you do you live there now full time? I, oh. I do. Yes. Oh. There, there are chateaus everywhere, and um, very um, medieval towns. And I'm right outside a town called Sarlat. It's, uh, it's called in American you say Sarlat. It's S A R L A T, and it's very very beautiful. Oh, that's... How long have you been there? Only a year and a half. Because you were in London before that, weren't you? I was, yes. I've been in London for about 20 years or longer. I can't even remember. Yeah, about 20-something years in London. Wow, good for you. That just sounds so amazing. So do you have a studio, like, in the in the chateau nearby, or how does that work? Unfortunately <laughs> not. <laughs> so I've got some... I, I'm trying to create a studio for myself on the, um, we bought a farmstead, so it's kind of three buildings, and uh, we're living in this old farmhouse, which is dating from about, apparently the 1750s or something, oh and then uh, and there's this enormous barn um, that the dream is to convert that into a fabulous studio, oh. uh, but unfortunately we're just, we're, we're just kind of doing what we can as we go along, because it's it, we, we spent a lot of time and money on the house and then we you know we were a bit exhausted from that and then now we're working with an architect to see what we can do with the barn but um yeah so it's it's all a bit kind of a lot slower than I thought yeah well and plus yeah then you add the French countryside to it and everything slows down even more 
Yes. Yeah. That's the point. So it's just feeling like you're on holiday all the time. It's yeah. quite hard to snap out of it. Yeah. yeah. We live in a really small town in a in a restored farmhouse too. And when we first, we came from Vancouver. So, you know, lots of contractors, lots of big businesses that you call and they come. And then here, it's just so chill that... Yeah. Like the flooring guy just decides not to come because it's a great day to take the boat out. <laughs> well, that's what it's like here. We've been waiting nearly a year for the architect's first plans for our barn. Oh, my gosh. Uh, so it's nearly a year now. Um, and it's kind of like, you know, yeah, it's kind of ridiculous here. It's, everyone's just very much kind of uh, laissez-faire, you know, and just yeah. kind of on holiday. And then you see them down, you see that we see we actually saw our architect um, drumming uh, in a band um, <laughs> in the streets of Savala, you know, during the kind of music um, festival. And we were like, no wonder he's not doing our plans. He's, he's in a band, you know. Just <laughs> <laughs> that is hilarious. Well, it'll I guess it'll all just come in good time and yeah. maybe he'll come yeah, and drum in there for you while, while you're working. Yeah. Who knows? <laughs> leave our kind of London mentality in London yeah that, because yeah otherwise we'd be permanently angry you know and you, you've got to sort of stop being like that and just kind of go with the flow yeah that's exactly how how we were too it took a while it took a while to shake off the big city thing but we're good now we're good now um okay so I, I always like to go backwards and start at the beginning about what you were like as a kid and like I said I know some of these answers because of the book but you had quite a childhood Speaking of France, yeah. actually. It's a bit strange, yes. Yeah, so I was born in Cannes um, in the south of France. My, my parents were from London, and uh, my father kind of fell in love with France during the Second World War because he was fighting in, the, in France when he was about 17 or something ridiculous. So I think he joined wow. up when he was 16. And um, so he persuaded my mum to move there um, from London in the early 60s. And, um, yeah, that's, so that's how we ended up in, in France. And were you, bo- uh, so you were born there? Yeah, so I was born in Cannes. I've got a sister who was born in Nice, and um, uh, my parents were both quite sort of bohemian, and they, they'd, they'd both kind of left school as teenagers, so they didn't go into further education, but they both loved art, and they did kind of evening courses in London. Mm. So I think my dad did one at Goldsmiths, some sort of evening art class or something um I think I suppose that would have been when he was in his 20s or 30s I'm not sure when he came back he he, he was also in Palestine after the war and sort of fighting and so I don't know what he was wow. lots of, so lots of crazy stuff you know in um in Europe at that time and um and then my mum was doing sort of little evening courses at um uh Central School of Art as it was called then which then actually became Central St Martin's which is where I went full-time you know as a wow, proper yeah um, yes, yeah, so they both loved art, um, and I think they just had this romantic dream to go off to France and, uh, you know, be kind of bohemian artists. And and were they like were they making art when they were living in France? They're trying. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I, I don't think it really worked. I mean, my my dad um, kept it up longer than my mum. My mum had to get a job, so she was a secretary, and um, she was she worked as a secretary for for many years. And then my dad was kind of, I think he wrote a novel at one point and he did drawings and stuff, but they, they were always very much outsiders. You know, they had no clue um, how anyone sort of went into the art world, you know, or anything like that. They were very kind of um, 
kind of like outsider artists, dreamers, you know. Mm, mm-hmm. And so when you were little, were you just making art from the get-go? Pretty much. I mean, we, we did a lot of drawing in our flat. We had a little flat, um, just in, it's, it's a place called Lukeni, which is just behind Cannes, which is where all the kind of locals live. You know, you've got all the kind of rich people live at the front uh, in Cannes on the, on the Riviera. I don't know if people know it, but like, you know, you've got the, the very glamorous kind of posh bit of Cannes. And then you've got this place called Lukeni, which is just behind Cannes. Mm-hmm. Um, we were there in a little tiny flat. And I do remember doing a lot of um, drawing and um, painting, you know, just just trying to painting boxes and doors and all sorts of things like that. <laughs> um, and then when you were seven, you didn't live in France anymore. No, I got sent to boarding school in England. And that must have been, did you go with your sister or were you on your own? My sister was already there. She went when she was nine, and then I got packed off there when I was seven. So this was this very, very, very strange um, religious school uh, that my mother had gone to when she was five. And um, also my grandmother had gone there and her sister. So it was kind of a sort of family tradition. Uh, and anyway, I we got packed off there, and it was, it was just very, very... Um, religious and old-fashioned and um, very odd. Yeah, and you didn't speak English at that point, did you? No, I didn't speak any English, so that was very scary. Oh, my gosh. At least your sister was there. That's, like, kind yeah. of... Yeah. Oh, yeah. my gosh, you must have been terrified. It couldn't have been more of a contrast, you know, from the Kutas here, which is just so sunny and bright, and the French, I find, are very sort of uh, open and sort of, you know, and then you go to a kind of weird religious boarding school in the Midlands of England. I mean, it was really, it was yeah. kind of like going back in time as well by about a hundred years. Oh my gosh. Um, I, I have a friend staying with me at the moment actually, who's from, who I was at school there with, and we were talking about it the other night with some French people and they were genuinely shocked. <laughs> <laughs> I bet. We had to wear veils and we had to do all sorts of religious ceremonies where we walk down the streets wearing veils, singing psalms, and, and, and the police would, would block off the streets and all the American tourists would photograph us. You know, oh it my really God. was very strange. Oh, my gosh, that's kind of crazy. Were, did, you, just, did you think it was kind of crazy, or were, did you just get used to it? I just thought it was England. I thought the whole of England was like this. I thought all the English were like this. This was England. And, you know, I, it, it, actually, I didn't discover, I think till I was in my early 20s, that it was like a really peculiar school in an in, in a, you know, unusual uh, setting, because I was at the, the Musée d'Orsay in Paris, and I saw a postcard there, and it said, and it had a, a picture of our, our village, and with, um, with the villagers dressed with sort of stags' um, horns on their shoulders doing this thing called the stag dance, you know, with, with veiled children, strange, spooky, veiled girls in the background. And and it's, and I thought, you know, like I said, I thought this was just a normal thing everyone did in England. And, and when I saw this postcard from the Musée d'Orsay, and it said, you know, the, the, um, the unique, um, you know, uh, ceremonies of, of, of this village called Abbots Bromley, you know, and that's when I realised that it was really odd. Oh, my God. Does, that, does it, that school still exist? Yes. No. <laughs> yes, it does. <laughs> oh, my word. I take it you're not sending your daughter there? No. <laughs> no. 
<laughs> you just make her walk around with a veil and uh, horns on her head in in France. And breaking the, the breaking the cycle is it is that it's gonna break the circle and you know that that's it. It ends here. Yeah, it ends with me. Yeah, good for you. Oh my gosh. Well now there's a painting series right there, veiled girls and yeah. Spooky, <laughs> you know, veils and like we we had we even had um, exorcisms, you know, in our dorms no. at night and stuff. We had a we had a priest in the school who would come round and do kind of make us take drink um wine and take you know holy communion like at, at two in the morning uh to get rid of the ghosts you know and it was all it was you know when i say it was strange i'm not exaggerating oh my god this should be a movie yeah i know i know it, it, it was really kind of we were talking about it my friend and i we were saying it's just like very sort of hysterical you know because all day every we had to sing psalms in the morning and we had chapel on thursday nights we had church on sunday morning so the whole time we were talking about you know the holy spirit and all this kind of weird stuff and uh, and it was all ghosts this and ghosts that and holy ghost and you know and then at night we had the priest coming around and doing with oh the dawn it, it was like a hysterical really you know oh, how, and how long were you there you were there till you were 16 or something like nine years yeah wow well one of my favorite stories that's in the book is about um uh I'd asked about if you did art there and you said that the art teacher yes but the art teacher was not great but at least she let you guys smoke in the art room <laughs> yes with the village boys with the village boys and in fact, my friend just told me, so she has a great memory, which I've kind of blocked, blocked out a lot of stuff, but she told me that actually that art teacher got the sack. So <laughs> in retrospect, kind of unsurprisingly, yeah, we, she used to let us, we were never allowed to talk to the boys of the village. They were, you know, known as the village boys. And we were strictly forbidden from, you know, talking to them or anything. And um, yeah, so she used to sneak them into the art studio. We had this lovely little Victorian house, which acted as an art studio. And she would let us sit there and smoke cigarettes and, um, you know, as long, as long as we were painting or something, you know. So, so we'd, we'd have these village boys doing pottery with us, you know, and we'd all have to sit around and just, just to kind of hang out with the boys. We used to have to make stuff. Oh, my gosh. It's just so funny. I, I laughed out loud when I read that part of your interview because I was like, well... There's an art teacher for you. No wonder she got fired. Yeah, she was cool. But yeah, exactly. She was the one cool person at the weird school. Um, and so, didn't you get expelled eventually? Yes, I did. Yes. <laughs> Which is yes. also awesome. And surprisingly, as well, because I had my my father was very against it, and he was actually sending me letters, and I didn't see him for a long time. I had a period I didn't see him for about seventeen years. But when I was at school, he was actually sending me letters. You know, he's saying. Saying, uh, you know, oh, those awful spinsters in your school, you know, ignore them and uh, don't listen to them. And he was very rebellious, my dad. And, you know, and he was very against this whole kind of school thing that we were, that my mum was kind of insisting on. And, um, yeah, so I, they just ran out of punishments for me. I, I, I got suspended. <laughs> I got suspended for 10 days. Um, I got expelled from my house and put into another house. And, and I, ha I have the record of detentions ever helped by any child in hundreds of years. I'm quite proud of that. Yeah, good for you. Good for you. It's good to have goals and to achieve them. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and so, um, so I, yeah, again, I had, to, I had to Google this when I got your interview back. Um, so then you went to a crammer. I had to Google what a yeah. crammer is. Yeah. So this, I ended up in this place um, in Oxford, which was basically where you go and you sort of, 
um, so for me, I got expelled halfway through my A-levels. Um, well, I kind of, yeah, halfway through the year. So I kind of missed the rest of the year. And then I had to start, uh, I had to do my A-levels. Um, in, in basically, I had one year in this crammer. My mum just said, oh, you know, she said, you can go and I'm, I'm not paying for that place for two years. You can do them in a year. So I had one year to do my A-levels. And uh, it was a place, it was the complete opposite of the religious boarding school. It was, you got given your own front door key and you shared a house with lots of boys and uh, they'd all been expelled from schools in England. And so we were all basically very, very, very naughty children, all shoved together in these kind of boarding houses around Oxford. And then you would show up to your, to, to your tutor's house to, to have a tut tutorial, they were called. Um, so it was complete opposite of the boarding school. So obviously you can imagine the atmosphere there was wild. Yeah, I was just uh, going to say, it sounds fun. Well, it was just party crazy, you know, party central. And funnily enough, years later, I, um, I ended up working with this art dealer who, who we'd forgotten, but he'd actually gone there as well at the same time as me. And so we, we, our paths must have crossed, and he was the one who said it was really borstal for, for posh kids, you know. <laughs> we, basically, it was if we'd been, you know, not at some boarding school, we would have ended up, you know, in sort of juvenile, you know, juvie or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, as, as kind of middle-class children, we were sent off to these crammers, you know. And, uh, yeah, it was very, very wild. Very. Oh, my gosh. Like, I, I, I wish that I made movies because I, there's the whole thing. You just, you just laid out the whole script for me. <laughs> wow. It's amazing. Okay. So then again, I know that you didn't study art right out of the crammer because you were kind of done with stuff like that for the moment. Oh yes. I wanted to travel. That was my big, big thing. I really, I mean, I traveled a lot from England to France, but that was about it. I think I've been to Spain once. So I really, really had uh, the travel bug very badly, and I, I just really wanted to see the world. So I did French and Spanish at university. And you actually studied, and you went abroad, right? Didn't you do a year somewhere? There's, there's an, a scheme in Europe called the Erasmus scheme, where people go on exchange with other universities. Um, so, yeah, so we, I did an exchange with some other students who went to London, you know. Um, so I lived six months in uh, Martinique in the Caribbean, which is a French island, wow. and then six months in Mexico. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah, because you must have felt like you'd broken free of prison. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that, no, that's it. It was like kind of being, yeah, you know. Well, I'd, I'd, I'd gone to London straight after the crammer, so I think I, I got to London by myself when I was about 16 and a half or something, because I'd been ahead at school as well. I'd been a year ahead. Um, so basically I was about... 16 and a half or something or maybe just going to be 17 when I when I arrived in London. Oh my god, where, who, where did you live? Well I just lived with, uh, oh dear, I lived in some kind of lodgings you know and I worked, I found some job and I worked in um, in a pub and, and then I, I was staying with this very very nice family um, and the woman was an artist actually and so, actually the man was too and they had this beautiful Victorian house in London um, in a park called Lewisham, which wasn't very nice at the time. And, um, no, it was New Cross Gate, sorry. And they were ever so nice, and they were the ones who encouraged me to go to university. Hmm. Uh, you know, and and did, just, like, did they want... you doing with your life, you know, 
you're just kind of floating and they said you should go to university you know you've got a levels you should go to university and you know and they persuaded me they said it's not like school it's completely different <laughs> yeah I mean I'm sure yeah you'd be like you'd have PTSD and not ever want to put yourself back in a school system yeah um yeah. And, but that but did they encourage you to do art you think no actually oh, they no. did yes they did say to me oh you should do art you know they said because I was drawing all the time uh but my my parents were quite anti well especially my mother she was very much kind of you know she said there's no money in it you can't make any money it's very it's not really a job keep it as a hobby you know so right she was encouraging of me she'd always say you know oh you're very good at art and you know and all that but when it you know she didn't uh particularly encourage me no to go to art school or anything she kind of I think she just thought it wasn't very sensible. Well, I guess because they tried and it didn't work. So, you know, there's that fear for your kid that... Yeah. Yeah. My mom's an artist, too, and um, I did first... You see, now I have a daughter. I get that. <laughs> yeah, t- totally, right? Yeah, you want them to be... My son right now is saying that, you know, he might like to be an actor or... And he would be really good, but I'm like, I don't want to send my kid to Hollywood. <laughs> it's just so hard you know and I just think the disappointment as well because there's so few I think it it, it, you know I remember I heard once that something like 98% of artists live below the poverty line you know in in the UK anyway and I just think you know the chances of succeeding are so slim I just you know it's the the disappointment as well you don't want them to kind of go through all this kind of hope and effort and then you know, anyway. Is she artistic, your daughter? Yeah. 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 <laughs> well, <laughs> we'll see what happens. Um, my husband's a cartoonist, and he's he's a brilliant um, draftsman, my husband, Will Kevins. Oh. He's, he's a graphic novel, which is amazing, you know, and all this. So she's, we always say she's got a double dose. Yeah, it's right in the DNA. There's no, there's no getting out of that one. <laughs> um, okay, so you go to school for languages but then so then you're working for a little bit and but you ended up like you said at back at St. Martin so how did that all happen? Yes well basically after after I did my language degree I did I moved to Barcelona for a year I lived in Barcelona and I, I thought I wanted to stay in Spain forever I tried to go to some art classes in Barcelona but they wouldn't let me in because they said you know you're not professional and you haven't been to art school so I literally couldn't even get into a life drawing class in Barcelona because they were, you know, you have to have been to art school and all this kind of literally shut the door in my face. Wow. So I, I started realizing then I thought, you know, I, I probably am going to have to go to art school because everything I want to do, I, I basically don't know how to do it by myself. Um, so I went back to England and I did a, a, a class, an evening class in sculpture at Camden Art Centre. Hmm. Um, the teacher there was very encouraging and just said you should really apply for art school so that's what finally gave me the push to do it so I did hmm. um, and so sculpture that's interesting yes I was in sculpture first yeah so when you went to art school did you did you go in thinking that you uh, like as a sculpture major or was it uh no when you start in London you have to do foundation right which is the uh you have to kind of basically do a bit of everything and so what yeah, what what grabbed you in that foundation year Ugh, pretty no, nothing. That's pretty awful. It's oh. not stupid way. It's it's pretty awful because you end up having to do things like theatre design and oh, this okay. and that, well, and community sculpture and all these kind of things for like two weeks. So it's kind of a bit frustrating, and you just have to muddle through. Um, 
No, then I was doing photography actually during the foundation. I think the photography got me. Um, I like photography a lot. Huh. Uh, and when I applied to St Martin's for the full time course, uh, sorry, the part time course, but the the full degree. Um, yeah, then then I started. I was very much doing photography. Wow. When did you stri- sort of transition to painting? Uh, probably about the third year, because uh, it was a five-year course, because I did everything part-time, it took double the, the, the length of time, so the degree course I did was five years, the foundation was two years, so altogether I was at St. Martin's for seven years. Wow, and uh, what were you, what was your day job again? Were you a secretary too? Yes, yes. So funny, just like your mom. I know. <laughs> yeah. um, and, and my husband is an ex-army person, so I've literally no. just... <laughs> Parents, just become my parents, yeah. So, um, uh, yeah, but yeah, and you've was, moved to France. I know, and that's why I said I'm just basically my parents. I'm just, you know, but at least, at least you've stopped the boarding school veil cycle. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, okay, so yeah, so you're you're um, a few years in and you started how. Was it just a painting course that resonated with you, or how did that all well, start? So they don't really teach you painting or anything like that. They just you, what you do is you go on a kind of it's a two day two D pathway, three uh, D okay. or four D or something like that. So basically, I was on the two D because I was doing photography, um, and then I just thought I kind of learned everything there is to learn about photography. I've done the dark room, done all of this kind of stuff, um, and I just thought I really, really always wanted to have a go at painting properly. And I thought, I've, I've only got a couple of years, really, to get stuck in and get to go. Mm-hmm. And I, I had this idea, the boys series I had from a very early time, um, and I, I couldn't do it with photography. I had considered hiring a load of kids, you know, doing, um, uh, doing it photographically. Um, and I'd even considered a video with maybe some actors, you know, pretending to be Hitler and all this kind of stuff. And in the end, I just thought it, this really only works with painting. Hmm. So that, then I just had to kind of try and find a way of doing it, you know, because I knew what I wanted to depict, but I didn't know how. Right. Wow. Um, so it went from there. Yeah, so it really was the idea came first. Yeah, and then you just had to pick the right the right um, medium. Yeah. And so, was Hitler the first one you did in that series? Yes. <laughs> and did at you? First, at first, I did criminals, and I did uh, Mary the First, Bloody Mary. You know, royalty. I did all sorts of evil in commas people um, as children. And, um, and then, and then I narrowed it down. You know, to my my tutor, who was fantastic, Pam Skelton. She was the one who suggested, you know, why don't we narrow it down to sort of one type of person, you know. So I, I narrowed it down to the sort of dictators, you know, political leaders of the 20th century. Yeah, and it is so interesting to think about, like, they were they were little boys at one point. Yes. You know, they were little boys who were playing in the front yard, and then they become these horrible dictators who, it, like, it, it is really crazy when you think about it. Yeah. And then that's the thing, I was doing my thesis on um, images of children and childhood in art. So, it, again, that all came from the idea of, you know, the idea that uh, kind of painting children was a bit taboo, you know, in art. It's seen as very twee and very old-fashioned and mm. not, not contemporary at all, you know. 
um, unless you say make that child very sexualized, you know, or something like that. So basically, my whole thesis was about, you know, images of children in art. And I was also working, by that time, I was working at the Museum of Childhood in Bethnal Green. Wow. Uh, which is part of the V&A, Victoria and Albert Museum. So, yeah, so I was kind of surrounded by it, you know, the whole childhood this, childhood that, you know, the perfect childhood, the you know, invented childhood, all this kind of stuff. So that's kind of what I was trying to show. And then I considered doing them as teenagers because I thought, when does a person you know, become sort of responsible for their actions? When do they change? When do they stop being this lovely little child and, you know, something else? So, yeah, I was working on that idea for years. <laughs> you know. Did you ever do paint them as teenagers? Uh, no, but I did do some... Well, Saddam Hussein is quite teenagerish, actually, in that series. He's more he's more about sort of 12 in that. Huh. Um but no, no, I did look at teenagers for a while, um, but I thought, no, I, I ended up doing children because I thought I wanted that reaction, that kind of gut reaction of when people look at children, they immediately think innocence and, you know, lovely children. And then I wanted them to have a kind of jarring reaction when they read the titles of yeah. the work. Well, you nailed it. <laughs> you did well, that. Titles. Yeah, it worked better with children than it did with teenagers. Well, and so... Um... Your style is so, I mean, I can always recognize your work right away. And so did that come quite quickly to you when you started playing around with this? Um, I suppose it did um, in terms of, uh, I don't know. I mean, I started when I was doing the, first of all, I did the paintings with the criminals and Mary the First. They were kind of full-length portraits okay. of, of kids on stool, funnily enough. Oh. And that was a heavy paint. Um, so that didn't work, that just didn't work, and also they didn't work together, it was too kind of colourful and too, um, you know, there was too many distracting details like clothing, so then I decided to limit it, yeah, to the, to the faces, um, and again, I didn't have a lot of money, so I couldn't really afford to just burn canvas after canvas after canvas, you know, and I discovered the oil painting paper in an art shop, um, and I loved it also because it was cream and not white, and it's actually oil prime paper. Um, and it was it's it's just it was very nice because of the creamy coloured. I felt I didn't really have to paint the skin because oh. I, with white paper, I think it looks too white, you know, and yeah. empty. But I thought with the cream, it's slightly more, you know, um, skin colourish. Not really. Yeah, but there's like have, a little bit of warmth to it. Yeah, warmth to it, you know. And so, and then because I had, I, I ended up, I had very little time to work it out because we had a degree show coming up in the um, early summer. So the, the, it was all to do with the rushing as well and having not much time. And I really, I, I did some canvases first, actually, of the heads with Hitler and Idi Amin and Franco and a few others. And again, the canvases didn't work. They were too heavy. So, yeah, so it kind of all happened, you know, quite quickly and I thought no I want to start again and do it kind of uh, more um, sort of lighter yeah. you know so the paper was better I felt it was more I didn't want it to be all about the painting I wanted it to be really about the idea mm-hmm. um, so I wanted to do a lot of boys together and I didn't have time to do a whole bunch of canvases you know so yeah it was all kind of came about like that really mm-hmm. that's so lovely how many pe- how many pieces were in that series 30. Wow. Oh, my yeah, gosh. 
Burton boys, yeah. So, so, and that was the thing. And and uh, a lot of people at the college sort of had gone kind of crazy, and they were saying, "You don't have time to start again." They were saying the canvases are beautiful; just use the canvases, you know. Um, but um, no, I said that wasn't, you know. I really wanted it to be also about the numbers. I wanted it to be this kind of less individualistic and more of a group, you know. Yeah, all of and your work is sort of like that. Group. Yeah, and I wanted it to be a large group. Yeah, yeah, because then it's I, even more overwhelming. Yeah, and I think also it kind of almost kind of normalizes it and kind of gives you an idea that that in a way it's almost normal. You know, like I, I could have painted uh, another 60 easily. Oh, you know, there's so many dictators of the 20th century. There are just so many. Um, you know, in South America alone, there are hundreds. You know, it's kind yeah. of... So I wanted to get across that, that feeling that... Um, but it's almost human nature, and even if this boy wasn't there, there'd be another one, you know. And yeah, following and in right behind him, yeah. Yeah, which I think I do with all my series, actually. It's always kind of wanting to highlight the, the number of yeah. uh, people. Mm-hmm. Okay, I have one technical question, and then I want to keep talking about the boys. So, okay, your your strokes and everything are all just so, like, lovely and loose, and, like... And there's no going back. Once that paint touches that paper, like, if the lips aren't quite right, like, that one's trashed. Yeah, well, actually, there are certain colours that are very easy to wipe off, like, oh. kind of browns. Uh, well, it all depends, really. Some of the, And I, I dilute them a lot with terps, and then some of the browns, yeah, the, are very um, easy to wipe off, actually, from the paper, but the, the reds are, yeah, forget it. Yeah. Once the reds come on, it stains the paper, and there's nothing you can do, yeah. So how often so, do you have to toss one and go again, or have you just kind of gotten, like, is your does your hand just cooperate, and it goes where uh, it's supposed to? I used to destroy so many, so, so many, and then, obviously, the more I did it, the better I got at it, and then I kind of was destroying less paper <laughs> and then then I then all the shots ran out of the paper I had I was ringing around everywhere nobody liked the paper so nobody bought it so these art shops had had the paper sitting on their shelves for years you know so I bought up all the old stock I, I literally ran the whole country and, um, and and I got all the old stock and then so I was always aware that I had a I had a, a limited number of pieces of paper left um, and then I did run out oh but in the end, I was being extremely careful with it. At the beginning, I was, like, chucking them, you know, any <laughs> day. So what do you do now? Well, now I'm working on wood. Oh, I didn't know that. Yes, the drag series is all on wood. Oh, I had no idea. Yeah. Do you, so, do you prime it? Do you prime it with something? Yeah, it's oh. always primed, it's, um, and I tint it as well so that it kind of matches the paper colour. Ah. Um, Sneaky. Yes, I did end up. I had to really investigate that paper. I had to track down the factory that made it in Devon, and I had to speak to them and try and get them to tell me how they made the paper. And you know, it was a nightmare. And at one point, I offered them like ten thousand pounds to make me small paper, and they just laughed. Um, so yeah, in the end, a guy felt sorry for me because I'd call every six months, you know. And then somebody, and then he felt sorry for me and just told me how he made it, you know. And, and so I just went off and sort of replicated it. Oh my uh, gosh. It wasn't the same as the original paper. Right. You know, it's not got the same kind of quality. So I knew in the end I'd have to stop using it. But I, I hear this happens a lot with artists. They fall in love with a product 
and then they stop making that product and then you have to kind of find something else yeah it's like it's like the universe is like making you push yourself it's like yeah. come on let me just buy my stuff yeah it's, yeah it's like you sound like a junkie who's just like come on just one more hit just one more hit Princessa Farmer who's a great artist she said uh she just looked at me one day she said Annie she said it's nothing to do with the paper it's what you're doing to the paper she said it's it's you know she said it's all in your head um you know you can paint how you paint on anything you know did and you I was like I was like no no I really think I have to have the paper <laughs> yeah. she's just, she like you're being ridiculous you know <laughs> I was just gonna say did you believe her do you believe her now um yeah no I'm kind of painting on the wood I actually really like the wood (laughs) yeah you know what it's so funny is I just transitioned to wood too like mm, maybe six months ago Ah, and I really like it yeah I mean I did a couple of years ago yeah and I do really like it it's very um it's a bit impractical because it's heavy to post places you know yes I'm not not sure if I'll be able to do big wood paintings because obviously that's quite impractical um and it's hard to store too that's the other problem yeah yeah and I think I I think I am I think I'm you know I'm going to have to in the end just you know actually paint on canvas like everybody else but (laughs) I'm trying to put that off (laughs) resist resist um so I just read this I didn't know this um so you graduate from school with that series is sort of your main like that was your was that your graduation series yeah 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 and the whole thing gets purchased. Yeah. By Charles Saatchi. Yes, by Charles Saatchi. Yeah. So were you, was your mind blown or what, what was going on there? Yes, I was completely, uh, at first I actually thought it was a joke because I used to have this um, uh, temping agency guy. He used to call me occasionally and make jokes about um, being a big art dealer you know, uh, because he knew I was studying art. So I thought it was him because, you know, I thought, I just thought, oh, this it's just somebody winding me up. Anyway, um, no, I, I eventually did sink in that it was actually the Saatchi Gallery because obviously it wasn't Charles Saatchi who called me, it's his staff. Um, and then um, they asked me to uh, to send it to them, to, to sort of pack it all up and send it in a car. They said they were going to send a car over and I should put it all in a in the boot and uh you know and I'm just thinking is this really real I thought what, you know what's going on anyway so um so then yeah that happened and then they called me and uh you know said how much and uh the, the prices were ridiculously low unfortunately um because the, the college had priced them at um, only a hundred pounds each oh. so I I remember I know which was a huge problem for me for years then having to climb out of that terribly low price bracket so basically, they said, you know, they said, how much is it? I said three. I said three thousand pounds. And the um, his PA, she said each, you know. And I said, I said no for the whole lot. You should have said, uh, yes, yes, that's what I meant. Yes, yes. Um, no, I couldn't really because you know the thing is, it's uh, it's it's all um, it was it all been published at prices. Yeah, you know, yeah. And all this so. Anyway, so that was a bit uh, upsetting. But anyway, um, they, um, yeah, so that was that, you know, a deal done and they, they took it and that was that. But I, I know it was really uh, uh, unbelievable. You know, I did do a dance around the, the, the flat. Yeah, no kidding. And so did that um, lead to anything else for you? Like, were you suddenly, like, could you, did you come out of school? Could you quit your secretary job and be an artist? Or No, no not for a few years. 
Um, so I, I did, obviously opened a lot of doors for me. I had lots of galleries who wanted to work with me. You know, well, at the very beginning, I had, I, I actually just worked with an artist-run gallery called Studio 1.1, who are fantastic. They've got a great reputation for showing good artists, you know, but they, and it's kind of peer, you know, they, they choose what artists they like, you know. So my first show was with, was with a very non-commercial sort of gallery. Um, but it was, um, it really opened a lot of doors for me, obviously, because, um, uh, the, the, the press, I think they sent a press release to some people and then, um, the Sunday times wrote about it. They're saying that it was going to be my first solo show. And then the day after that, the independent newspaper did a big double page spread on me in the independent. And then, you know, and it was, it was a crazy week, wow. which obviously wouldn't normally to somebody who had their first show you know? <laughs> yeah. so that, that was obviously the Saatchi effect um, working there you know uh, and then so by the time my show opened on the Thursday um, all the works had been sold already uh, wow. because you know yeah so that's not normal <laughs> no not at all <laughs> um, and so were, so your whole thing gets sold so now you have no work because you've sold it everything that you've been working on so was there suddenly like a demand for new stuff yes yes a lot yeah so I had a sort of long waiting list for a long time did Um, you know what you were gonna do sorry did you have yeah like did you have a plan like were you because you know when you graduate and you finish a big series you're very often like kind of like and then all of a sudden if you're expected to have a whole new body of work Absolutely, and in fact, what happened before that was that the Bloomberg, there's an award uh, in uh, in England called the Bloomberg, um, I can't remember what it's called now, but where they 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 go around the art schools and they pick out uh, and or they get the staff or something to recommend certain students, and they do this kind of art prize, you know, for recent graduates. So they had also actually uh, before Sachi got the work, they had asked me to to to, to they wanted the boys series. And um, obviously then it was sold and I had nothing. Yeah, so I did have a mass panic and I had painted a whole bunch of new work in about two months, you know. Um, and I, and it, I didn't, I mean, I didn't get into that because I didn't have the work ready and it wasn't, uh, you know, kind of finished and all that. So that, I, um, yeah, so there, was a, there was a little downside to it because obviously when it got snapped up, there was nothing, yeah, nothing yeah. left to show, you know. Um, yeah, so I, I basically, honestly, I was doing that for years. I was just bashing out work, trying to think of new um, series to do, you know, and it was, um, it was quite frantic. Yeah. When, when was um, the History of Art series? Oh, I think that was, when did I start that? I mean, I think maybe 2015 or oh, okay. maybe, I'm not sure, I can look it up. That's, um, that's, I think, when, oh, no, I wrote about you before that, but when that, when you put out that series, I, I mean, that was a huge catalyst for this book. Uh, that's amazing. Yeah, which is why I love that you're the first one in the whole, like, the first story in the whole book, um, because I felt exactly the same way, you know, um, I'd been an art history minor, and there were no women like we weren't you know I was an art student trying to be an artist when I grew up and then taking these art history classes and there was just nobody like for me to emulate and it was like oh like you know you start to even if it's not conscious subconsciously you're like oh there's no place for me yeah that's right yeah and I think exactly and so I had kind of absorbed this message as well this kind of 
oh, there weren't any successful uh, women artists ever. You know, I, yeah. I, was, I, was, I was quite convinced of that. Um, and then when I can't even remember how it's like, I, I started off, I was reading about impressionists. Um, so the very first paintings I did, it, I did a little group of four women, and it was called impressionists. Um, and so when I started reading up more, you know, and discovering just how many successful women artists there had been actually, um, I asked my other friends who were artists, and none of them, they all had the same idea as me, because I just thought, maybe I'm very ignorant. You know, That's I what I thought too. That's what I thought too. Yeah. So, so I asked my, my friends who'd all been through a big London art school, you know, and none of them had heard of these women. Um, and it turns out that really um, they are well known, but in a very small field, really feminist art historians know about them, you know, yeah. and, and maybe some male art historians as well, but not, it, it's such a small area of study. That's, that's what I've found, really. Um, so, you know, do you know what I mean? So when you, you do meet some people who kind of know, or, or who kind of will look at you and say, well, of course, Angelica Kaufman was a, a legend. So of course, Vigée Le Brun, who's not heard of Gentle Eshley, you know, and all this. And I was like, well, you know, I thought, well, actually, I hadn't heard them. You know, how, I mean, and I went through the whole process, and I did, I did ended up doing a master's as well in museum and gallery management and stuff. And I thought, I, I hadn't heard of these women. And obviously, I should have. Yeah. You know, um, or I had maybe heard of them in passing, but never given them a lot of thought or attention. You know what I mean? Yeah. Maybe, maybe I'd heard of them, but I hadn't realized how successful they were or had been, I kind of, I might have known their names, but just kind of thought they were some struggling woman artist who lived years ago, no, and I hadn't realised the kind of, um, the fact that they were art stars, you know, and hugely famous, and that's the thing that I'd missed, mm -hmm. uh, you know, I had not realised that there were all these women who had been kind of legendary in their lives, you know. Yeah, and outselling the men in their, in, like, their contemporaries, <laughs> yeah. You know, higher prices at the auctions, yeah, um, you know, all, the whole works, you know, massive uh, waiting lists for their work, you know, getting all the biggest commissions. Um, even you, you look back at the Italian women, and it tends to have gone from country to country, sort of, you know, where they were, it was really huge. It, the Italian kind of artists were the first kind of major art stars, I think. And then that kind of, and then there was a period when it was lots of the, the kind of, Dutch uh, women, you know, and it kind of, but and there, and there wasn't just sort of one or two, there were loads, and that, that's the thing that I had completely missed, you know, um, I didn't know that there'd been this whole thriving art scene full of women artists who were, yeah, getting all the commissions, who were, um, you know, annoying the men because they were, you know, get, getting that commission and this commission, and, you know, they were all competing for, like, commissions for chapels and churches, you know, the altars and all that, and it was the women who were getting them, and it was the women who were getting the royal commissions, and it was, yeah, so I just, all that was complete revelation to me. Yeah, I know, me too, and uh, and then you find out, because I, I, you know, put up my little hand in my art history classes and said, you know, did women not make art? Like, that seems crazy, and I had this one amazing prof, and he said, oh, you know, of course, you know, sort of what you said, but he said, uh, quote, they weren't considered important enough to document so he said, you know, yeah. there's not very much information, you know, in the textbooks and stuff about them because they weren't documented. And so once enough people have died and time has passed, like that information is lost. And so it's not taught. And, oh, it just, I just remember being so 
angry. And as, um, you know, somebody who wanted to be an artist when they grew up, I was like, so am I not going to, like, am I going to work my ass off my whole life and just not be documented? That's right, yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, and that's the thing, and that's why I called the series The History of Art, because I really felt that the, that it really was about the recording of the history of art. Yeah. You know, art history. That's how, that's what I thought, that's what I concluded, that it really was. So it wasn't the problem about the work, you know, the work was amazing. It wasn't a problem about uh, in their day, you know, they didn't have, they didn't struggle too much in their day. They had a lot of success. So I thought, what is the issue here? And it really is the recording of art history. Yeah. You know, so in a way, yeah, that, that professor's right. It's really just about the recording of it, you know. Um, and it was the fact, I think, that there were not many women writers, art historians, who were writing about, um, you know. So some the, the women, what you find is that they were written about to begin with, and then gradually they sort of just get dropped from right. the literature. Yeah. You know, to the point now where you will go and see a really big show of impressionists, uh, impressionist artists, and there won't be a single woman in it. And you're thinking, but if you look back at the catalogues and the writing at the time, there was there were really a lot of women impressionists, you know, um, who were in every show uh, at the time, you know. And it's like, yeah, it's it, they gradually get written out. Mm-hmm. It's like a whole process. It's craziness. That's why, you know, a huge thing for me is this podcast. And then getting the opportunity to write this book was that it's like, okay, I- I'm going to document stuff. Now, while you guys are all alive, and I can ask you about smoking with boys in the art room and, you know, things like that, that not only about your work, but, like, who you are as a person, because, um, you know, art history books, it's, you, you just get, like, the gloss over, and with women, you very often just get nothing, and so, um, you know, I own stacks and stacks of big, important art books, and if you flip through, I have this one book that is huge, it's a pop art book. I don't know how many pages it is. Probably 500 pages. There's not one woman in it. I know. Pop art. Did you, did you see the documentary? Um, oh, what's his name? I can't remember. Some, uh, this guy in England a few years ago did, actually did a documentary of um, women pop artists. No. Oh, yeah. So there were, And there was... Uh, oh, no. I'm going to have to try and remember my uh, names here. Um, there was one who was far, far more successful than Andy Warhol. Um, what was her name? I'm just finding her name for you. It's some kind of French name, I think. French, she was kind of... Sorry, I'm just going to find her, because I, I, I've got a document here where I list all, all the ones I wrote about. Um, I'm going to find it. And, and this this guy in his show was saying that they... Oh, Marisol. Mm. Marisol Escobar. Um, she was known as Marisol. She was a French sculptor um, of Venezuelan um, heritage who, who worked in New York. And basically, she was a huge, huge uh, star in the pop um, pop art scene. And and there were queues and queues for her shows, queues down the streets in New York. Wow. Um, and um, and they say and basically she was very very quiet and uh, didn't speak at all. Um, you know, was very very shy on camera. If you look her up on, there might be things on YouTube where she answered kind of monosyllabic replies. You know, and was very mysterious. Um, and apparently Andy Warhol emulated her whole um, sort of vibe because he had been very very chatty. Um, oh, here it is. So I've actually made a note in my notes. So it was Alistair Sook. Who, who claimed, okay, he did a, the, the documentary Pop Goes Women. Okay. The other, 
the other story of Poppard. And I've actually made this note here. So he claimed that Andy Warhol stole Marisol's image. So it says, Marisol was a mysterious and quiet person who often answered questions with a few words. Um, Warhol's friends confirmed that Warhol was a loud and gregarious person who changed his public persona to copy that of Marisol's. After observing her and realising that it was her enigmatic character that intrigued journalists and the public alike. So, and it says here, according to Sook, as his name is, yeah, that's the Sook, uh, Marisol's shows attracted large crowds who queued around the clock. So, yeah, you know, like I said, every single movement that the women were there. Yeah, of course. Of course. Every single one. Yeah. There. See, this is like when, as soon as I saw this series come from you, I just, oh, I just, yeah, you know, I felt like I wasn't just ignorant, you know, because you almost don't want to admit, like, just now when you're saying this woman's name, it's like, I, I don't know about her. And I've written art books and I have this blog and I, I feel like I should be like, oh yes, of course, of course I'm aware of her. And I'm not, which makes me feel ashamed. So then you don't want to admit it. So then, you know, and you feel ignorant. And, um, and so when you put out this series, I was just like, it felt like an exhale almost and, and momentum at the same time. Um, you know what's funny though about this series is I just I feel very much like it's not finished because I I bought um, I bought these two huge um, encyclopedias um, I can send you the names I can't remember off the top of my head who put them together but there's enormous encyclopedias too and they're dark green and they're full like full of thousands of women artists. Oh. Uh, yeah, so I really feel like I've just done a tiny, weeny, 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 you know, tip of the iceberg. Yeah. And I ideally would want to do a few hundred, you know, and have them in a in a room all together. You know what I mean? Because, yes. Uh, because there are that many. Um, and, you know, like I started the research on the internet and then I found, I mean, like I was just looking at the pop artists, you know, I found at least seven or eight um, pop artists, yeah, you know, but, and they were the ones that Alex has sort of put in his documentary. And you know, for each movement, you've got you know a lot. I know. Um, I would love to. I would love you to do that, and then I will go and sit in the middle of that gallery and just sit there on a little cushion. Well, I would really like to do that. I mean, I think I probably will just keep on going, you know, and uh, now I've started it on paper, I'll have to keep creating my, my paper, you know, till I'm about 80. Uh, and <laughs> I've, done, I've done enough of these women that I feel satisfied. Yeah, because there are there are so many. And then I, I see kind of articles as well. There was just one on Artnet literally a few days ago. I got a link to it and I started reading it. And there was a whole bunch more that I'd never heard of. Yeah. You know, so it was like, oh, this is just crazy crazy you know I know well and I find like in in this book I've got 45 of you that are contemporary and then I've sprinkled in 30 little did you knows about historical women that were doing similar things to the things that you guys are doing but you know as far back as 1580 whatever and um it is literally not even the tip of the iceberg and I feel like I could write like 30 volumes and still not yeah. be done, you know. And there are so many as well that I think there should be a film about them. I'm, you know, they, we see these boring films about these boring male artists, you know, and, and, and all their love affairs. And it's like, oh, God, you know. And there were these amazing people. Have you heard of Edmonia Lewis? Yes. That one I know. I mean, 
What a story that is. I mean, Edmonia Lewis's story is just incredible. Yeah. You know, I, don't, I can't, I mean, I don't know, maybe there wasn't, maybe it has been a film about him, I don't know about it, I don't know. But, I mean, if there isn't one already, somebody needs to make a film of Edmonia Lewis's life. Yeah, <laughs> I know. know. And your life. No, well, <laughs> <laughs> okay, we're getting a whole, we're going to get a whole series of movies out of this. And maybe, yeah, Charlie, my son can star in them now that he wants to be an actor. Uh, yeah. He can play some, some uh, art historian that didn't document. No, I won't let him do that role. Um, well, okay, I'm so glad we talked about that in depth because it's just, just so good. Um, now, I just wanted to quickly ask you before we do the not so speedy speed round. So you have your daughter. You are not sending her off to boarding school. Um, um, but how old is she now? She's going to be seven in a couple of months. Right. So, um, and I know like this has sort of been a, a hot topic in the recent years that you can't be a successful artist and a mother at the same time. And you would have had her sort of in like, you know, like you were established, things were happening. Were you nervous to have a child or what are your um, thoughts on all of that? I mean, I, I was nervous, uh, but um, it's not really about uh, being a woman. I find my, for me, the problem is financial. I find that um, really for me that the, the obstacles for women, I think is financial. Right. Because I, if you can afford a nanny and you can afford good childcare and you've got a big house, so I, I, you know, I have a cousin who's who's a journalist and she has a living nanny and all this, you know, then obviously you can do anything. You can do anything you want. I think the problem comes down to finances, personally. Yeah. Um, I, when I, I when I got pregnant, I had to stop painting because turfs are very dangerous to a fetus. Um, and, and also when I was breastfeeding, I couldn't get paid. So I literally had to stop painting for about a year and a half to two years. Wow. How did you um, feel? How did that feel? Well, it was awful. It was really frustrating. And then I had stupid comments, you know, from male artists. And, you know, I had one saying to me, like, oh, are you going to, go, are you going to stop painting now? Do you think you're going to go back to painting? I said, well, of course I am. You know, why, why would you say that? You know, and he said, oh, my wife used to do art. That's what she used to say. Ha, ha, ha. And she's never done it since, you know. And all that. So you have this kind of... Um, you do have these silly comments that yeah. that come, you know. So you, you do have to tackle that. But I really do think that if you're financially, uh, you know, if you're kind of well off and stuff, then obviously it's not a problem. I mean, obviously for me with the turps, it was actually a physical problem. Uh, then I discovered uh, now I don't paint with turps anymore actually because it was during that time I discovered how dangerous turps are. I actually hadn't realised how bad turps are for your brain and everything. So I. Um, I now paint with something called, oh, blimey, what's it called? It's called, um, it's like a lemon kind of alternative. Oh. To terps. Uh, oh, can't remember the name of it. Uh, no, Tell me later and I'll, I'll put it in at the end of the post. <laughs> yeah, but basically, um, you know, uh, also, obviously I was very tired as well when you've got a baby. So it's kind of, I found that creativity actually is very fragile, you know, you have to be kind of in the right frame of mind. You've got to, you know, to, to do, I think, good work. I think you do have to be well-rested. Um, you need to not be worrying about money. You need to have kind of, you know, nice support network around you. So personally, I, do, I don't really think it's about uh, being a woman per se. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. I, think it, I think 
I think that would affect any man, male artist as well, you know, the extra financial burden, um, you know, having children, then you've got to move and have a bigger home and have a more expensive mortgage. And, you know, so personally, I just think it's, it's, it's a sort of financial obstacle really mm-hmm. more than anything. And, uh, and so once um, you weren't nursing anymore and you could start working, did you replace the turpentine sort of, did you figure yes, that out I- while you were nursing and stuff? Yes, I did. Yeah, I finally yeah. kind of figured out. I thought I can't keep not doing this, you know, and I, I need to uh, start, you know, painting something else. Um, I also tried acrylic paint, which I hated, mm. and um, I tried uh, oh, what were they called? They were horrible. Um, water-based oil paints. Oh, that was weird. That's weird. Um, yeah. <laughs> so I just, you know, just tried all this kind of stuff, you know, and it wasn't any good. Um, uh, but then, and then, well, like I said about the financial aspect, because in, in, in England, and especially London, childcare is so expensive. So I was sending um, Georgia off, she's called Georgia, I was sending Georgia off to childcare at first for two days a week, um, then three days. But it was, you know, it was £85 a day. Um, which obviously, when you haven't been working for a year and a half or painting for a year and a half, and it's kind of everything slowed down. That's quite a lot. You know, it's a financial burden. It's 85, yeah, 85 pounds a day for childcare. Um, so, I, yes, like that, that's what I kind of, I think it boils down to, because a lot of people ask me about this. And I, I really think if you're a wealthy woman, you have really have no obstacles, I don't think, personally. Because, like I said, if I'd been a wealthy woman, I would have had a nanny in the house. You know, right. I would have had a spare room. I would have had an au pair or a nanny or someone, you know. Um, and I don't think it's a problem then, really. Right, yeah. Well, I'm, I, I really wanted to ask, because, you know, that's a topic that comes up all the time. And I love it when, you know, people are working artists and parents. I think it's great. Yeah. If that's if that's the life that you want, then I love that people just go get it. And I just wanted to well, bring it up. Yeah, I think what was it, Lavinia Fontana? Is that what there's one there was one Italian artist, I think, who I discovered had eleven children. Yeah, there was one I read about too that had <laughs> ten children and she was so yeah. successful and I was like, And she had ten children. Yeah. And I was like, yeah, okay, yeah. people, no excuses, no excuses. Yeah, a supportive husband, you know, yeah, who had probably had lots of money and, you know, had about ten nannies. Yeah. And, yeah and that's what I mean. I think it's a bit of a kind of, um, oh, I don't know, it's a tricky one because you often meet women as well. You say, oh, I couldn't do it because I've got children, you know. And I kind of think, well, you know, it's a bit of a cop-out in a way, but then I can understand if that woman also hasn't got a very well-paying job. Yeah, you know, because obviously, I like I said, I'm convinced it's all down to financial. Um, mm-hmm. You know, that's, well, that's I, the real problem. And if I, childcare is really cheap, like in France, childcare is so cheap, and it's amazing quality. Uh, and, you know, in France, you pay ten euros a day, which is about eight pounds a day. Wow. So obviously, had I been in France, um, you know, seven years ago. Um, you know, well, obviously I wouldn't have sent my child to a nurse, you know, when she was a baby, but yeah. when, when she was older, I wouldn't, you know, I wouldn't have had that pressure of the £85 a day sort of pressure. Right. Uh, you know, so I, I do think it's, you know, it's I, I find that the childcare, I think in America, is the most expensive, followed by England. So I think that's a real problem. Mm-hmm. It is. And, you know, I, I talk to a lot of women who feel... Like they can't and, you know, if they, especially if you're home with little kids and they don't have time and they're exhausted and whatever. But I always say, like, they grow up. Like, Charlie's 12 now. And I was home with him till he was five. And, I mean, it, it was full on. And I would try and make art when he napped or, you know, once he started preschool, I would try and do work then. And, you know, you don't get a very big runway because they're only at preschool for three hours or whatever it is. But the thing is, now 
I mean, my gosh, I have a ridiculous amount of time and I'm still a mother, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So it's, yeah, you got to cut yourself some slack in those early years because it is full on and you're never going to get those years back. Like I look at videos now when he was two or three and I'm like, oh my God, just so squishy and you know, it, that's gone. So I'm glad that I enjoyed it. Yes, exactly. You know? Um, it, it is hard because I think that when you're an artist, I mean, I, there was a certain momentum that I kind of lost I yeah. think, um, from kind of suddenly disappearing years yeah but you've obviously uh, gotten it back <laughs> yeah yes exactly and I think and I think there's um the problem is that there is the expectation that you know it it, it comes to, there is still unfortunately that expectation that well someone's got to stay at home with a kid so it should be the mother right you know there is that kind of um you know uh expectation you yeah. know uh so you can't we're still obviously battling quite a lot of um things like that and expectations and you know yeah but yeah. I do I think it is changing you know and also like I said it depends where you are and I think if you're in a big place like London or New York people are far more sort of um modern in their thinking you know I can imagine it's different if you're in a little village in Portugal or something where people will just be shocked you know that if you went back to uh you know to your studio or whatever when when your child was two you know which right obviously I I did I did put Georgie in childcare part-time but only part-time and it was only a couple of days a week but it just gave me that uh time to work yeah you know? well and I think um, it's a that's why I'm asking you know when I have um artists on that are parents I always bring it up men or women because um it's again, it's one of those things that doesn't really get talked about because there is this weird like shame around like, oh, well, when did you stop nursing? And oh, when did you put them in childcare? And oh, you have a nanny or, you know, like all these different things. And it's like, let's just talk about it, make it normal, yeah. realize that every family can make their own decisions, you know. And men have problems too. Yeah. Because I think like, my husband is an artist, you know, he's a, he's, like I said, he's a cartoonist and he's a, he does animation and game design. And again, he had, there was suddenly a lot of expectation on him as well. He was also in a band. He had, he was a singer-songwriter. Um, and there was this expectation on him from his family, you know, very much like, well, now you've got to stop all that nonsense because you're a father. Right. You know, now you've got to, what, this band nonsense, you know, you can't do that now. You can't go on tour now because you've got your father, you know. So I think it's kind of, you get, there's a lot of, a lot of change happens anyway when you become a parent. Uh, and it's not just women, you know, men yeah. have pressures and you know and it's kind of it's just a huge change it is uh, which yeah I think, which does kind of um kind of rock everything anyway um you know <laughs> and it's just the lack of sleep yeah, I was just going to say, that's an understatement. I just remember sitting in our in our little townhouse that we were in, and I was nursing Charlie, and oh my God, I'd had a C-section, and I was just like a immobile, and it was a heat wave, and I was looking out our window, and we had a little, um, there was a pool in our townhouse complex, and I looked out the window, and all these people were going off to the pool with, you know, their towels and their floaties, and I just sat there crying, thinking, I will never leave this house again. <laughs> it just felt like... All I do is nurse every hour and a half, and I'm I can't even really walk, and you know, and then of course you come out of it, but you're so tired that it's hard to see the forest for the trees. Yeah, and I I mean I remember being in my art studio on those like two days a week that I had, thinking, oh my god, I must I must create something amazing today by five o'clock. Yeah. And then I've only Tuesday, and 
don't have to. And it was like that horrible pressure of realizing that you've only suddenly you've lost all your time. You know that you used to sit in your studio for the whole week, and now that's gone. You know. And, yeah. But then again, I was always working part time anyway, so I always kind of had that time pressure. Right. Um, because um, when I was first doing the art and everything, and I was doing exhibitions, I still had a part time job doing secretarial work. So I kind of always had that, but it it still felt like. Oh, I used to have so much time, you know, because I used to, I used to work from, I think it was like 4, 4 p.m. to 8 p.m. every evening in a, law, in a law firm doing secretarial stuff. And so I still used to have the whole day till about, you know, 3.30. So I, I could be at my studio at 9 a.m. and I'd have all, all that time till 3.30, you know. Um, and you do, you start going, oh, my God, it's finished forever. I'm never going to get that time back. I'm never, that was my heyday of having all those hours, you know. And then, and then I'd sit there in my little two days, and then I'd be so tired, I'd be nodding off, yeah. you know. Because <laughs> I'm, I'm so tired. And, you know, it can be really quiet in the art studio, can't you? Can't it? You've got the radio on, but it can be really, like, you just get into that weird state where you're by yourself all day. Yeah. And you just said nodding off you know, know. and you want and you just want and you just want to nod off like that's the best thing ever is just sleep uninterrupted sleep and then you wake up and you go oh my god i wasted the day i didn't do a masterpiece today oh my god and you're like you know i paid 85 pounds for that you know and I just, like, <laughs> oh my gosh yeah and then they go to school and then they want you to drop them off at the mall and pretend they don't know you so you know what it all <laughs> you, you get the time back um, okay, I, I feel like I'm using up your whole day here. So I want to just do my not-so-speedy speed round that I like to do. These are just okay. silly, fun questions. They're meant to be quick, but then I always make it slow because then I end up going off on tangents. So that's why it's the not-so-speedy speed round. So, ready? Yeah. Favorite dessert? <gasps> Tiramisu. Ooh, good one. I was just in Venice. I'm not, I'm not a tiramisu person, but I went to Venice last year and I ordered one because I'm like, well, I'm in Venice. I, and I was eating by myself. I actually moaned out loud <laughs> by accident. <laughs> I took the first bite and, oh my God, it was the most delicious thing ever. Oh, wow. Yeah. Well, I went to Florence last October. The whole time, my eighty-year-old mother put that in, and yeah, I had it there. It was just amazing. Yeah, it just melts in your mouth. Ooh, okay, good one. Um, okay, so I know that you liked your traveling. If you could be transported anywhere in the world right now, you don't have to fly. You just be immediately, magically dropped there. Where would you want to go? San Francisco. Oh, have you been there before? Yes. Yeah. Have you shown? I did a show there, and I didn't have enough time to go around. We were we were only there a few days, and um, the gallery wanted me uh, to be in the gallery every day. Uh, so I was really like, more well, I need to go back there because I never went around. I never saw any of the art museums. I never saw anything. Yeah, yeah, it's a it's a very cool city. So okay, you need to do that and have some chowder while you're there. Yeah, yeah I didn't do anything that. <laughs> any yeah I didn't get to do any touristy things so I, I regret that okay well I, I I love San Francisco because uh oh, I'm not actually that far from there it's like a two-hour flight which is kind of amazing and so it's been a really easy place for me to go and same thing yeah. the first couple times I went was just like I'd go down for whatever I was going down for and then leave and it's like I was just in San Francisco like why didn't I see any of the stuff yeah 
Yeah. Yeah. Good one. I also love Amsterdam. That's my favorite city in the world. Like, if I ever lived in a city again, I think I would live in Amsterdam. Oh, I've never been there. <gasps> I know. My parents used to live in Belgium. I was so close, and I never went to Amsterdam. How's that possible? You have to go there. And the, the Van Gogh Museum is just, just, I mean, heavenly. Okay. Okay. Well, you do San Francisco, I'll do Amsterdam, and then we'll reconvene. Yeah. Um, okay. Roller coasters. Hell yes or hell no? Hell no. <laughs> Just no. No. <laughs> what about your husband? Would he do them? Oh, God. We were just at a fair literally two nights ago, and um, I made him go with Georgie and my friend's daughter. They had to go on the kind of horrible... Um, they do these awful kind of things here where they, it's like, a, I don't even know how to describe it. It's on several levels and you have to walk through and there's like mazes you get stuck in. Oh, yeah. And, and I, I was made to go on with Georgie on the 14th of July, which is the big uh, celebrations in France for the revolutionary sort of celebrations, you know. And um, I absolutely hated it. And Georgie and I got stuck in this maze and then uh, it was dreadful. And I, I, so when we went to this other fair two nights ago, I said to Will, I said, it's your turn. I said, I'm not doing that again. And then when they came off, they were all trying to get me to take Georgie on a roller coaster. And I just refused. <laughs> um, and Will didn't want to go on it either. But he does. Yeah, he, he does all those kind of uh, big adventurous sort of dangerous things that I, I'm just like, no. But he, he jumps out of parachute. He, he, he does parachuting. He jumps out of aeroplanes. What? Yes. He doesn't have any fear of anything. So I know it's always no. That's I'm done. My roller coasting days are done. Done when I was a teenager. I'm not doing that anymore. Yeah. Oh my god. I, have you ever gone skydiving? Um. He did make. He did get me. I did go uh, paragliding. <gasps> Were you terrified or was it awesome? It was, I was kind of relieved to get it done when I finally did it. We'd been talking about it for a whole, it was one of those weekend things where you talk about it for two and a half days. So when you finally get up there, you're like, oh, now we're finally doing it. And, you know, now I can like go home, it's over. But actually I kind of, I remember, I, I kind of enjoy the memory more than the, than I did at the actual time, if you see what I mean. Right, right. So, I did, I did take off by myself at one point. You kind of run down a hill attached to a giant kite. You know, yeah. it's ridiculous. And um, I did take off once by myself, and the instructor got very worried, and he was yelling at me to come down because I was getting going up and up in some thermal. Oh, my um, God. Yeah, so that was pretty mad that I actually did. And then it was the tandem jump I did with the instructor, and that was a half-hour thing where you go miles up in the air, and, you know, it's just ridiculous. So, yeah, I, I, the whole time I was thinking, this isn't normal. This isn't natural. I shouldn't be doing this. <laughs> <laughs> Wait a minute. I'm not a bird. Oh, well, my gosh. Like the video. I took a video when I was up there, and I do occasionally like to reminisce and watch it. <laughs> wow, good it for you. It I'm very brave. Yeah, I just feel really brave, you know. Yeah. I'm really afraid of heights. I cannot even imagine. I can't, like, I can't imagine getting myself to do it. Charlie keeps talking about sky. He's like, I think I would. Would you ever skydive? And I'm like, no. And neither will you, yeah. young man. Yeah. <laughs> but he probably will. For some reason, I felt that the the paragliding or whatever it was, you know, where you kind of sit. It's like you're floating in an armchair. Right. You know, and that felt kind of slightly like someone's in control because you can actually come down when you want you know and you can go up and you can turn and you know right but the leaping out of an airplane no yeah no, no. I'm with you no no um okay this might you might I don't know if you might have to think about this one for a moment um this is the last one if you could talk to one of the women from your history of art series who would you want to meet <laughs> <laughs> 
Probably, uh, probably Edmonia Lewis. Yeah. Because she had such an interesting life. I'm sure she would have, like, just insane stories. Yeah, but there are so many. I mean, yeah, there's loads. I mean, Maris and you've got, um, how do you pronounce that? I have her in my book, but I don't know how to pronounce her name. The so Sofa Nisba. Yeah. Sofa Nisba, I think is her name. That's I mean, such that's, an... There are so many interesting stories. You know, this Suzanne Valadon was really interesting. Also, Amrita, Amrita Shergill, who's very, very uh, interesting. Um, okay, you need so, to do this gigantic series. Yeah, so Cecilia Bow was just such a beautiful painter. Love her paintings. I don't know if she would have been very interesting though to actually meet. Uh, <laughs> you could meet up with them with over tiramisu, and then you know. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I like all the impressionists. They were like really cool. Yeah, Suzanne Valadon was very cool. Apparently, she used to. Is that the one? I think I better check my facts before I spread misinformation. But I think Suzanne Valadon was the one who used to. Uh, give her paintings to a goat. Apparently, I think she used to keep a goat in her studio. Uh, <laughs> I think that was her. I better check. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah, I think that she was. Yeah, she was worked in a and she worked in a circus. Yeah, she worked as a circus acrobat. Wow. Um, she, she'd been a model for Toulouse Lautrec and Renoir, and at the age of eighteen, she had a son. Um, now, what was the thing about the goat? Uh, and I think she was the first, yeah, she was also the lover of Eric Satie, you know, the great composer. Wow. Uh, yeah, and then, um, oh, I don't have the bit about the goat, but I'm pretty sure it's her. I think she used to have a goat <laughs> in this video. She used to feed it, and she also, I think she also was the one who used to wear bracelets made of carrots. Oh, my word. Yeah. Yeah, so she, I think Suzanne Valadon would have been a really cool dinner guest. Yeah, that would have been a really good one. <laughs> oh my gosh. Well, I think you'd be a very good dinner guest too. You've been a very good podcast guest. If I have my facts right. You see, I'm terrible at like facts. I do kind of get people muddled up and I forget people. And I'm like, but I, I do have my notes here. So I know, I know it through, you know, about her lovers and all that. The only thing I'm, I, I pretty, I'm sort of 90% sure that it was, it was Suzanne Valadon who was the goat in the studio, but I can be <laughs> We can Google it. We'll Google it. I'm sure that'll pop up. Yeah. <laughs> Well, thank you so much for this. Has been so much fun. Like I, like I said, I loved your interview in the book so much. And um, but you know, I always want to know more, 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 more. So I was so thrilled that you were able to do this. And um, I'm going to put this episode up right around when the book comes out of the or in um, end of September, beginning of October. And uh, and then people will know you even more. And I can't wait to see what's next. Oh, thank you. Well, brilliant. I would love a copy of the book. Do I have yes. to buy it? Yes. No, you I don't. don't. <laughs> no, there's one coming to you. Oh, can I have one? Thank you. Yeah, yes, you can have one. I've already got your address. It's already with the publisher. And, they're, yeah, they're going to send them all out to you guys as soon as they get the big shipment in. Oh, fantastic. Yeah. I can't wait to see it. It's wait. so good. It's so pretty. Um, okay, well, thank you so much. And get back to all of your house guests. And um, I will talk to you soon. Okay, great. Okay, thank you. I want to hear the other interviews. Okay. Yeah, me too. Bye. Bye. <sighs> well, there you have it. I knew that was going to be a great episode, but I did not expect to find out that she jumped off a cliff with a kite on her back. <laughs> See, this is exactly why I have a podcast. Thank you so much to Annie for not only taking the time to be on the podcast, 
but also for sharing her inspiring story with me so that I could include it in my book. To go from admiring her History of Art series years ago to being able to put a book out into the world inspired by the very same idea is insane to me. Anyway, the book is now officially out all over the world, and I'm going to be kicking off my book tour in about two weeks, starting in San Francisco. You can find all of the information to where I'm going to be and when on my site under the speaking section. Thank you to Sachi Art for supporting this episode, and thanks to you for listening. There will be more art for your ear next weekend. See you then.